Guys, this morning is Valentine's Day. Yay. (laughs) Happy Valentine's Day. Now, according to the traditions of the early church, St. Valentine was either a priest or bishop living in Rome who was martyred on February 14th in 269 A.D. during the reign of Caesar Claudius II. He was martyred for the crime of marrying Christian couples against Caesar's orders. And in time, he would be honored for this heroic act and become, in the Catholic tradition, the patron saint of lovers, and oddly enough, beekeepers and epileptics. And today, his name is associated more broadly in our culture with this annual celebration of romantic love. However, as I pointed out in the midweek email, the great irony of all this is that the great man himself, Valentine, was a single man. He was a bachelor, a celibate priest. St. Patrick was not Irish, and St. Valentine was single. Next thing we'll find out, St. Nicholas was skinny. It's all wrong. Now, last year, around this time, in those last waning weeks before the pandemic arrived, remember those days? I hardly do. (laughs) We kicked off a four-week sermon series on marriage. And in the first message of that series, I addressed a number of people who I thought would be made uncomfortable at different times during the course of that sermon series on marriage. And at one point, I addressed the singles in the congregation. I said, some of you are single or widowed. And I imagine you wondering sarcastically when a church is going to do a sermon series on God's heart for single people. And how would all the married people like to sit through that for four Sundays in a row? (laughs) Do you remember me saying that? Well, I didn't forget about you. And although it won't be for four Sundays in a row, this Valentine's Day, we will be exploring, kind of ironically, what the Bible says about being single to the glory of God. Now, before we move on, I need to say this first. Married folks, we have not exactly forgotten you. (laughs) We have a, a, a plan I'm really excited about. I'm not sure when we'll be able to roll it out. The original plan was Monday through Saturday. We were gonna introduce a video a day featuring an interview that I did with different married couples in the church. Different seasons of marriage, different married experiences, and just kind of pick their brains to see what that has done in their walk with Christ and how that has worked for them as a married couple. Really excited. I'm hopeful that it's helpful to you and that it would build people up in their marriages. Also be releasing some um, devotional content throughout the week so that... uh, You guys know I haven't forgotten you. Some of that's up in the air because Andrew is my video guy, and he's um, right now, as as I said, somebody in his family is sick, and they're trying to figure out what's going on, and so he probably won't be around. So please be patient. It might take longer than we thought to get that stuff out, but it is coming. All right, but now, this morning, I want to think about singles. And as I reflect on that sermon series from a year ago on marriage, I am reminded of how hard those messages were for me to wrestle down onto paper at the time. A lot of late Saturday nights with (laughs) me almost in tears, struggling to come up with a message 
and uh, just struggling to know what to say. But in some ways, I think it is easier to write four sermons on Christian marriage than to write one sermon on Christian singlehood. According to recent statistical surveys, roughly 45% of the adult population in the United States is single today. Uh, back, as early, uh, back as recently as 2014, for the first time, there was actually a majority of the U.S. adult population in their singles. It goes back and forth across that line. But the circumstances surrounding being single can be so very different from one person to the next that it really makes it hard to speak to singles as one monolithic block. Uh, some might be very content as a single person. Some might be very discontent. Others might be a single person in their early 20s. Another might be middle-aged. Others might find themselves newly single after being widowed following four, five, six decades of marriage. And still another might be coming out of a divorce. Singles generally fall into one of three subgroups, and the experiences and struggles of these groups are often very distinct from each other. There are the single, there are the not yet married, and there are the used to be married. However, even though these are very different from one another, when we come to God's word, we see that God has some encouraging, inspiring, and I think also exciting things to say to all singles. Uh, and I really do mean it. I, I wish I could have flipped this around almost and done a longer sermon series on this as I began to poke around and search God's word. Uh, God has a lot to say to the single. Uh, he has a lot to say to the not yet married. He has a lot to say to the used to be married. And it's hard to boil all that down into one message. But here's my attempt at it just the same. Uh, to talk about Christian singlehood, I would like you to come with me in your mind's eye to a desert road in first century Palestine. And there, pulled over on the side of the road, is a dark-skinned Ethiopian man sitting in a chariot, and he's reading aloud from a scroll, possibly with a perplexed look on his face. He's reading the book of Isaiah, specifically chapter 53. And suddenly the chariot is approached by another man who is ethnically Jewish, but also a Christian leader and evangelist named Philip. Philip hears the man reading from Isaiah, and he asks him if he understands what he is reading. The Ethiopian answers, How can I unless someone guides me? The Bible then tells us that Philip, using Isaiah 53 as a starting point, explains the good news of salvation through Jesus to this man. And as Philip shares the good news with this Ethiopian man, the eyes of his heart open and he is given by the gift, by the Holy Spirit, the gift of certainty and understanding concerning the gospel. And taking advantage of a handy roadside puddle or maybe a flooded ditch, Philip baptizes the man into our family. Now, this encounter between two men found in our Bibles in the eighth chapter of Acts is fascinating to me for a lot of reasons. These were two very different men. They represented two different races. 
different nationalities, different cultures. They had been raised speaking two different languages and in two different belief systems. They were likely from two very different socioeconomic classes. One was rich and powerful and connected. The other was poor and unconnected. But there was another difference between these two men. One of them was married and the other was single. The fact that Philip was likely married is inferred from a verse in Acts 21 in which we learn that he had four daughters. And we know that the Ethiopian man was single because the Bible tells us that he was a eunuch. And to see what all this meant for a single man and what it might mean for singles in the church today, we have to first fix this moment in our minds within the flow of redemptive history up to that time. Throughout that period of redemptive history documented in the Old Testament, God's people were, for the most part, the descendants of a family line. In other words, God's plan to gain worshipers for himself and to build the community of faith, to build God's people, was through marriage and childbearing. This is how the church in the Old Testament essentially grew, marriage and childbearing. God's people were the descendants of Abraham through Isaac, not Ishmael, and through Jacob, not Esau. It was through procreation that one typically became one of God's people. So imagine our Ethiopian eunuch coming all the way to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple, for that is what Acts 8.27 says he was doing there before his encounter with Philip. He had gone up to what he thought was the dwelling place of God, but on his way home, next to a flooded ditch in the wilderness, God would come to make him his dwelling place. And I imagine that this man, when he was there at the temple in Jerusalem, must have felt like a total outsider at the temple. He was not part of the scene. He was not part of the family. He was on the outside looking in. And this is all too often the, what I hear from singles in the church about how they sometimes feel in the church. They feel like much of church life is geared towards married people, family, children, and they're left wondering where they fit with it all. This man, this Ethiopian, was not a participant in that exalted family line, and no family line would be furthered through him. He would have no continuing name. As he sat next to the road, reading Isaiah, but not comprehending its meaning, we are told that the specific verses that he was wrestling with were found in Isaiah 53, which was a prophecy concerning Jesus. Isaiah 53 is one of the greatest Old Testament prophecies. Uh, even if you're not familiar chapter and verse with it, you have no doubt heard the language that he was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Well, that's in Isaiah 53, 5. The verses that Acts 8 highlight are verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah 53, but verse 10, which comes right afterwards, would have been rich with significance, I think, for this eunuch if only he could be helped to grasp its meaning. Verse 10 says this, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's Jesus. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, 
he shall see his offspring. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. What does that mean? I think it means this. God's people, the church, will no longer grow and be formed through marriage and childbearing, but through faith in the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus. This is a seismic shift. This is a big deal. The children of God are not born through human procreation. They will be born again through the Holy Spirit. Imagine the eunuch's delight after Philip mysteriously disappeared as he read on into the next chapter and grasped the meaning of the very first verse of Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. And imagine this man's wonder and delight when just a couple of chapters further on he found these words. It would have been, I think, like God was speaking directly to him. In the first seven verses of Isaiah 56, it says this, and it couldn't be more on the nose for an Ethiopian eunuch. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hands from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples." Now, in these seven verses in Isaiah 56, the first seven verses, I believe there are some words of just wonderful words uh, that should uh, stir the hearts of all Christians, but I believe are especially designed to encourage singles in the faith. I, I, I thought of three things we might take out of these verses, and there are probably more, but here's the first one. The first thing I think we can take from these verses is the truth that God did not create human beings ultimately to enjoy marriage or sex. He created us to enjoy Him. In Matthew twenty-two thirty, Jesus said, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. There will be no marriage in heaven. 
except that which is the marriage between Christ and the church. And because that's true then, I believe that singles now are uniquely equipped to show others a preview of what heaven will be like. And the truth is that even though the enjoyment of romantic love, marriage, and sex are wonderful gifts from a good God, ultimately we were not made for these things, and we can very easily make an idol of them. We were made to enjoy God and be satisfied in Him. Christian marriage is often rightly described by Bible teachers as a showcase exhibit or a living illustration of the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. In Hebrews 5:25, another single man named Paul wrote, "Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her." You see, marriage there by Paul is meant to be this living sermon illustration that demonstrates visibly in our homes the way Jesus loves his church. Husbands, love your wives that way. Make Jesus visible in the way that you're a servant leader in your home. So that's how Christian marriage is often rightly described, but much less often, singleness is also meant to be a showcase of something. Consider this, that singleness showcases some things that marriage never can. Singleness, therefore, is not a problem to be solved or a state to be pitied or something. Since there will be no marriage in heaven except the marriage between Christ and the church, singles are uniquely equipped to show others a preview of what heaven will be like in their undivided focus and devotion to their God. Uh, This is precisely why Paul encourages believers in 1 Corinthians 7 to remain single. 1 Corinthians 7, it says, Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I think one of the great mysteries in all of this, you know, in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says very bluntly, you are not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. But then have you ever noticed in the very next chapter, Acts chapter 7, Paul tells women, your body is not your own, it belongs to your husband. And he tells husbands, your body is not your own, it belongs to your wife. Something interesting is happening here in marriage. It's not that Paul is critiquing marriage as a bad thing. It's saying, though, that in that relationship, your interests become somewhat divided of necessity. There's a mystery here that I don't claim to understand exactly. But what he is saying here very plainly is that singles... Those who are called to it and able to be single and are gifted by God to live in that way have this amazing opportunity to make visible how to be holy in body and spirit, how to be undivided in their focus, wholly committed to the will of God. 
And here's why it's, it's uh, helpful to think of singles, I think, in terms of these subgroups. Some people might be saying, well, I want really desperately to be married. It's something I think about a lot. It's a desire I have, and I believe it must be from God. And I don't argue with you. Uh, Paul especially says that if you are um, burning with desire, it's best to get married than to continue in that state. He's dealing in a very gritty way with some practical realities surrounding all this. But here's a thought for you to consider. During this time of singleness, whether that is what you are called to do or it is a temporary time as you wait to get married, who you are single is who you will be married. And I just would encourage you to consider this time as a time of preparation. Uh, in, in his words in Isaiah 56, which I like to imagine the Ethiopian man reading on the side of the road, he says, To the one who keeps my Sabbath, who chooses the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, he is saying to the eunuchs there, to the foreigner, he's saying, focus on me. Make me the center of things. You were not ultimately made for other things. You were made for me. In Isaiah 56, God, and in Isaiah 56, God promises a blessing to the eunuch that is better than marriage or children, namely himself. So that's the first thing I think to consider here, that God is not, did not create human beings ultimately to enjoy marriage or sex. He created us to enjoy him. But here's point number two, which I think God has to say to singles in these verses. A solitary life is not God's plan for us, whether we get married or not. And for my last two points, I'm going to be drawing them out of verse 3. Verse 3 in Isaiah 56, I'll reread it right now. It says this, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. There are two concerns that are raised in this, in these, in this verse. The first is a concern about being alone and separated. And the second has to do with being without offspring says, the Lord will surely separate from me from his people. And behold, I am a dry tree. Solitude and barrenness. I do not believe that a solitary life is God's plan for a single person. And this is true whether they get married or not. In Mark 3, 31 through 35, Jesus is teaching inside a house, and the place is packed. People are spilling out of the crowded house into the street outside. His mother and his siblings have arrived outside. They're trying to get his attention. And it says this, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now in this moment, I don't think Jesus is cheapening the unique bond that exists within family relationships. 
I think what he is trying to do is to elevate the bond that comes through belonging to the family of God. From Jesus' perspective, the ties that bind a church family together ought to be regarded as stronger and more permanent than blood relations. He's elevating the bond of Christ even above that of our family bonds. Jesus likes to draw this comparison, I think precisely because it is so jarring. For example, it's hard to imagine a more provocative passage in all the Bible than Matthew 10:37, where Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And this is a conf- confrontational verse because I can't think of any fiercer passion that exists than my love for my kids or my family. And Jesus is saying in a very confrontational way, a difficult way, it's a hard word, if you don't love me more than these, you're not worthy of me. And again, I don't think, and, uh, and we might add the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.29, who says this, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. What does that mean? <laughs> Again, I don't think it is Jesus or Paul's intention in these moments to cheapen those relationships, but to elevate in our thinking the importance and primacy and permanence of our bond that is found in Christ. Marriage and family will one day be no more, but the church is forever. Marriage and family relationships are temporary and earthbound, but the church is eternal. And by calling this Ethiopian to himself, God was joining him to a people and an eternal community. And whether or not it is God's plan for a person to be married, I cannot say. But I do know that married or not, it is not God's plan for anybody that they live in a solitary way. Now the second part of verse 3 in Isaiah 56 is this. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. It's very interesting. At the dawn of creation, in the Garden of Eden, God blessed Adam and Eve and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And at the dawn of the church age, God gave a similar but different command. He told his people to go and make disciples of all nations. The heart behind both of these commands is that the earth would be filled with worshipers. In fact, these two commands only differ with respect to the means by which God's objective was to be accomplished. But the heart behind these commands is one and the same. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with worshipers, call them out of every nation. To Adam and Eve, The means by which the earth would be filled with worshipers was through the act of procreation, marriage, childbearing. But in the Great Commission, the heart is still the same. Fill the earth with worshipers, but we do this not by making a family, but by making disciples. So when we come now to the New Testament, Jesus makes clear that his people, the true people of God, will be produced not by physical procreation, but by spiritual regeneration. 
This is why he says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, there is nothing more blessed, I don't think, than having a child of yours become, like, I I long for the day when my children, my sons, will not be sons anymore, they'll be brothers. (laughs) Every Christian parent hopes that their children will grow up to be adopted into another family, the family of God. And not to leave you out, Lucy, I want you to be my sister, not my daughter. It's true. This is the great hope. However, it is also something that we know and we see around us that not always does it work out that way. So again, when we come to the New Testament, Jesus makes this point clear that unless one is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. And that the family of God is no longer going to be grown by making a family, but by making disciples as part of the family of God. This is why Paul says in Galatians 3 to the Jews and Gentiles alike, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So it is not by virtue of our physical descent from Abraham in in that family line that makes a person part of the covenant people of God, but rather faith in Christ. And Peter says that our inheritance comes not through marriage and offspring, but through the work of Christ and the new birth. 1 Peter 1, he says this, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Children are not born into God's family and receive their inheritance not by marriage and childbearing, but by faith and regeneration, which means that this eunuch could bring forth children unto God. The Apostle Paul was a single man. He's the author of 1 Corinthians 7, of course, where he famously says, I wish that you would be like me, single. That's better. And he said of his converts, Though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, he wrote, "We, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So Paul has lots of children. I like to think of that eunuch making his way home to Ethiopia, pregnant with the potential of the Holy Spirit and the gospel inside of him. And I wonder through what birth pains the Ethiopian church was brought forth. I wonder how many spiritual children our eunuch begat in Ethiopia. And I wonder what that church family was like. Let not the eunuch say, I am a dry tree, and let not the foreigner say, I will be cut off from God's people. I hope that perhaps one day we will know the rest of the eunuch's story. But today we're busy writing a story of our own. And I know that singles find themselves single under lots of different circumstances. And it's difficult to speak to them as a block. 
But if you are single today, I feel very confident in saying this, that God's heart for you is that you would demonstrate whether this is a season or whether this is your calling. That in this time, you would let your undivided focus on God and doing His will be a showcase preview demonstration of an eternal reality. For in heaven there will be no marriage. But in these days, Christian marriage and Christian singleness both exist in order to exalt God and glorify Him. I think also we can know that whether a person gets married or not, it is not God's plan for them to be alone or to live in a solitary way, but to seek out community in the body of Christ. And in your singleness, know that the family of God does not grow through marriage, but through the making of disciples. And let this be the central passion of your life. Let's pray. Well, dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, this word. Father, I know that if Jesus should tarry, And if enough years go by, eventually either Sarah or I will be single again. Father, that which is eternal is you and the church. And Father, I thank you, Lord, for the singles here at State Road Advent Christian Church. I thank you, Lord, for all that you put on display through them as they follow you. Father, in their loneliness, I pray, Lord, that you would satisfy them with your presence, with the body of Christ. Father, if this is a time of preparation as they await the day when they might become married, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would use these days in wonderful ways to prepare them. God, to to make them more like Jesus. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would use all of us to be fruitful in these days in the work of winning and making disciples. Father, thank you, Lord, for the story of the Ethiopian and Philip. Thank you, Lord, for these words of comfort that you have for all people. And God, I thank you, Lord, for the way that you call us to yourself and and in all of our different circumstances and the way that that our life is god that you just meet us in so many different wonderful ways god i thank you for that father help us to be a great encouragement to one another and help us lord to be a wonderful family we pray all this in jesus name amen